We are going through a sermon series in the book of Ecclesiastes. The tagline is The Frustrations of Life. We're talking about all the different ways in which, oops, yeah, all the different ways in which uh, life has been frustrating throughout human history. And uh, the book of Ecclesiastes explores a number of different aspects of life. We talked about the frustration of wisdom, the frustration of happiness. Today we're talking about the frustration of work. Um, you know, recently our three-year-old who goes to childcare, uh, he's been complaining about not wanting to go to school. We call it childcare school. And, uh, and he's three, and he's already over. He's always asking when he can be done going to school. And I keep thinking, it's going to be a while, you know. First off, first off, you have to start real school. And then, and then you do that until you're 18. And then some people go to more school, and then some people go to more school. And, and then after that, there's work, which is debatedly even worse than school. And you do that till you're 65. But so there's a long way to go. Because uh, some people, they don't even stop at 65. Now, anyways, I wasn't explaining all that to him because, I mean, any number bigger than 10 is kind of hard for him to grasp anyways. But I think it just pointed out, you know, even at this early age, he has this category of work. And he doesn't really think about it in the same terms as we do, but he has this idea of, like, every day I go to this thing and I don't like it. It's this thing I have to do, and, uh, and th- th- they tell me, they give me these rules I have to follow, and they tell me all these uh, responsibilities I have, and th- there's these tasks I have to perform, and I don't like that system. I don't like that culture. And I think adults, you know, as we grow older, we, we might not say the same exact things, our personalities change, our preferences change, but I do think there's this inherent uh, raw feeling that we had as kids that stay with us. And this is idea, this idea of there's this thing I have to do because this is what's on my plate. And I do it over and over every day or at least five days a week or something like that. And I don't like it. Or there's things about it that bother me. It can be a monotonous or it can be repetitive or it can be restricting or it can be stressful. It can be frustrating. Um, and we dream about doing something else. You know, and the author of Ecclesiastes also talks about this frustration of work. This is Ecclesiastes 1, 3 to 4. He writes, What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come, generations go, but the earth remains forever. In other words, what's the point of all of this work? You know how some people, they, they have this phrase, no pain, no gain. They use it in sports a lot. Well, this passage is basically saying, you know, you... You put in all this work. What is the gain? There is, there seemingly is no gain. And so why are you going through the pain if there is no gain, nothing to gain from it? In this verse, you know, about generations coming and going, but then the earth remaining, I think what this is getting at is, is any of our work making a difference at all in the long run? It seems like one day we'll be gone. All of our labors, all the fruits of our labor will be gone, and the planet will just keep on spinning as if we never existed. And so you might be thinking, well, that sounds a little bit pessimistic. There are plenty of good reasons to go to work, and, and, and I think the author of Ecclesiastes anticipates this because throughout the book, you know, uh, he's, he's, he bounces around different topics throughout the book, but he often returns to this topic of work, and Every time he returns to the topic of work, he addresses it a little bit differently. And I think what he's often doing is he's addressing, now some people go to work 
for this reason. But let me tell you why that's not a good reason. And some people go to work for this reason, but let me tell you why that's not a good reason. So let's, let's go through a few of these examples in which he's explained why all these different reasons aren't compelling enough reasons to go to work. So let's go through a few reasons why people work. Here's the first reason, which is they want to leave an inheritance. Some people work so that they would leave an inheritance. And uh, this is addressed in Ecclesiastes 2, 17 through 21. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had told for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish, yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. So I think there's two uh, parts here that, that can be addressed. The first is this. You know, he's imagining someone who is working a lot, and, he's, and this person is thinking, I'm working so hard to make all this money just so that I can leave it to this person, maybe my kid or, you know, whatever, fill in the blank, who will inherit my money, but what guarantee do I have that this person will spend that money well? Maybe this person will invest in something really dumb like typewriters or beanie babies, you know, and then and then and then they're gonna lose all the money. And so the second and so that's that's just a practical example. Like I'm working so hard. It's like someone who like, you know, um, builds you know a really complex Lego structure and then another kid comes and knocks it down. Like why 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 am I even trying? And the second point I think is this isn't it a bit unjust that some people who have the most money in the world didn't earn that money? Right? He's saying, like, for a person made labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave it all to another who has not toiled for it. And so you have these people, and this has been, you know, ever since humans have been around, this has been a thing, where some of the people who have the most wealth, the most comfort, uh, the, some of the people who are the most lazy, they are the people who, they do the least work. And so how is that fair? Um, so the author is basically saying, like, you know, if I work hard and I leave a lot of money to my kids, like, what if that means that they'll just become lazy because they have so much money, and am I just not sort of in contributing to inequality around the world? And so why, why would I do that as well? And so if your primary reason, I think, for working hard is to leave an inheritance for your kids, then the author, I think, is challenging you. That's not a good reason. There's, there's goodness in that, but that's not the ultimate reason why we should be working. All right, so let's keep going. Here's another reason why some people work. Uh, oops, sorry. They want more stuff, right? So let's read uh, Ecclesiastes 4, verse 4. And I saw that, and I saw that all toil and all achievements spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, chasing after the wind. So the author, he's talking about one of the primary drivers of work, which is envy or jealousy or covetousness, wanting stuff that you don't have. You look at someone else and you say, oh, they have a nice a bigger house, they have a nicer car, or they go on more exotic vacations, or fill in the blank. I want that, and so I'm going to go to work so that I can make money, so that I can get that. And the author's saying that is meaningless, because here's the thing with covetousness or wanting more stuff, is you never have enough. You get what you think you want, and then there's always more. And because there's always more, then you always have more work to do. 
you'll never feel like your work is enough. It's, it's like a never-ending game. You know how there are these games out there where you, you level up, you, you start at this level, and then you work hard, you get to the next level, you work hard, you get to the next level. Some games are gracious enough to have a max level, and then you've, you reach the max level, and then you're done with the game, basically. But some games, they, literally, there's no max level. And you just keep going and going and going, and, and you just you can never end. And that's how work is sometimes, is you feel like you, you, ha- you, you reach this level, you have this amount of stuff, and then once you reach there, and then you're comparing yourself to everyone around you, and you feel like you don't have enough. You know, uh, one of my best friends from high school, I was talking to him recently, and so he works for Facebook in, in the Silicon Valley, right? And so he makes a pretty good amount of money. But he was just telling me about how because he works in the finance department of Facebook and not in the engineering department of Facebook, he feels poor compared to the rest of his coworkers. You know, and I think that just gave just a great, it was just such a great analogy. Just like, it doesn't matter where you work. In the eyes of someone else outside of your world, you, it may look like you've made it. It may look like you have a lot. But it, when you compare yourself to other people around you, it often feels like you don't have enough. So you're just chasing the wind. It never ends. All right, so we talked about the motivation of leaving an inheritance, the motivation of wanting more stuff. Here's a third reason why people work. They want to be liked. They want to be liked. Um, this, is in, this is a little bit, it takes a while to draw this out of this passage, but I think it's pretty insightful. Let's read Ecclesiastes 4, 13 through 16. The author says this, Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw all who lived and walked under the sun follow the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, it's chasing after the wind. All right, so let's understand this context a little bit. All right, so the author is saying, imagine two people. You have one person who is this poor, wise youth, and you have another person who is this old, foolish king. And the poor wise youth somehow, against all odds, rises to the kingship, and he becomes the king's successor, right? So he's sort of painting this story of what's happening. And everybody loves this guy. Everybody's saying, oh, this old foolish king, he's backwards, we don't like him. But this, this poor wise youth, he, he, he's with the times, and so we like this guy. So let's, so, and, it's, and, and the author's saying, everybody under the sun is following this guy. But then you have this line those who came later were not pleased with the successor. In other words, I think what he's getting at is, even if you live this life where you are beloved by so many people, all these people like you, and everybody is saying, oh, this leadership is trash. You should be the leader. You should be in charge. You do great things. You are more competent. You get more things done. And people like you, let's install you as a leader. And, what, and the author's saying, once you get there, then people will come later and they won't like you. And, and they're going to say, why is this old guy in charge? We should bring someone else, someone with more fresh ideas, someone who's different. You know, and it's, it's a little bit like our modern politics system. You know, we sort of do this all the time where we look at the people we have who are in charge of politics and go, we don't like any of these people. They're part of the establishment. We need to bring someone who's not part of the establishment, someone who gets it, someone who's young. And so we bring this person in, and, we, and then four years later, we go, no, this is the wrong guy. Let's find someone else. And so that's, that's sort of what we do all the time, whether it's in politics, and we do that in workplaces as well. And, um, and I think the author, he's just saying, if your motivation is to 
do nice things so that people will like you, know that one day, if people install you into enough positions so that you have enough publicity, eventually you'll reach a place where people won't like you because you'll be old news. You'll be part of the establishment. You'll, if your motivation, or here's another way to think about it, if your motivation, or another angle, I guess, if your motivation is to move up the ladder, one day, even if you reach the top of the ladder, then other people will move up the ladder too and replace you. So it's this never-ending cycle. You'll never get what you want. So those reasons won't satisfy either, all right? So what should we do then? Should we stop working because there's no good reasons to work? Well, I don't think so. There are places in the Bible that encourage us to work. I think the key is to find the right motivations to work, the right motivations to work. So we explore some of the maybe unhealthy motivations to work, building up an inheritance, wanting more stuff, wanting to be liked. Those might not work out, but what are the good motivations for work? Or rather, maybe not necessarily what are some good motivations, but how should we think about work in a healthy way? What are some healthy principles we should have when we think about work? All right, so Ecclesiastes, unfortunately, uh, hammers more on the what not to do than what to do, all right? But there are a few principles that we can draw out. So here's one. Uh, healthy principle number one, have a good work-life balance. Have a good work-life balance. This is Ecclesiastes 4, 5 through 6. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one hand with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Now, this is a fascinating passage. You know, some people debate over, you know, what this means. But I think this is what's going on. There, he's giving you three options, all right? So the first option is you are a fool who folds your hands. In other words, you do zero work. There's a picture of someone, you know, when you're folding hands, you're not, there's nothing in your hands, right? So you're doing zero work. And then option number two is you have people who have two handfuls of toil. They're doing a lot of work. Their lives are consumed with work. They're just carrying so much work. And then option number three is this person who is implied. He has one hand of work and one hand of tranquility. In other words, he has some work and not a ton of work. Right? And what the author is saying is the best place to be is that, is that option of you have one hand of toil and one hand of tranquility because if you fold your hands, if you do zero work, you will ruin yourself. The Hebrew literally says you will eat your own flesh. Okay? So, but it's sort of an expression meaning you're, you're just shooting yourself in the foot basically. All right? And then if you have two hands of foil, you are just chasing the wind. You're striving after things that will never satisfy. And then what you should do is you should have balance. You should have some work and some rest. And another way to think about this is maybe the, the solution isn't to try to think what is the right motivation for work because that is, you're starting at the wrong place. We should reframe the whole thing and ask, why are you trying to find the right motivation for work? Maybe working so much isn't the ultimate goal. Maybe you should work less. Maybe you should work less. You don't have to be a workaholic. You can work sometimes, and rest other times. In fact, maybe it's healthy to find less motivations for work so that you can rest some more. All right, so that's one principle. Have a good work, uh, healthy work-life balance. Here's another principle. Work for the enjoyment of work. In other words, don't just work so that you can get something and maybe in the hopes of getting that thing, that will satisfy you. But maybe just look for joy in your actual work, and that can be an ends or a goal to itself. 
This is Ecclesiastes 5, 18. This, this verse is said in, uh, in various ways throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, but this is just one example. This is what I have observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, in this line, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. So uh, this is part of the formula for having a good life, is to find satisfaction in your toilsome labor. Don't place too much hope in what you hope to gain in the aftermath after you labor, as a result of your labor, but just be satisfied with the work itself. Uh, look for beauty in your work. Look for friendship in your work. Look for justice in your work. Look for joy in your work. Look for good things in your work, not necessarily in the things you will get after you've done the work. And so and that's a great principle as well. You know, I think that can keep you centered and focused on your actual work itself rather than you know, feeling bitter or frustrated sometimes when you feel like the results of your work aren't there. Just to enjoy your work just as it is, just as it presents to you. So those are some nice principles, you know, work-life balance, enjoyment in your work. But I also think we're missing something else because, because you know, any you know, sort of pop psychology self-help book can have principles like that. I think we're missing something else because Ecclesiastes, I think, paints an incomplete gospel. Ecclesiastes is just one book out of the Bible, and it doesn't complete the full picture of the gospel. And I think because of that, the solutions aren't ultimate. It's actually missing out, and I think one of the most important solutions, which is a core part of the gospel itself. And I think to get the full picture, the full understanding of how we need to understand work, I think we need to read the whole Bible. And in particular, verses like Matthew 11, verse 28, where Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. The gospel, I think, can be think, thought about this way. We all work because at our core, we are missing something. We're missing something. We want uh, joy, or we want peace, or we want a stress-free life, or we want uh, an inheritance, we want possessions. We, we, we're missing something. And so we work in the hopes that we will be satisfied. We'll be able to fill that gap, that hole in our hearts because we're missing something. But the core issue is that we're sinners. And we can't fix ourselves. We cannot achieve the things that we really need because we are the source of the problem. And so what Jesus is saying is come to me. You don't have to work anymore. <clears throat> you don't have to rely on yourself to fix your problems. You can let that go, the desire to fix yourself go, and you can come to me and I will heal you. And I will give you what you need. Now, it doesn't mean we don't do work anymore. Um, I think it's interesting to think about this idea of how we are saved not by works, but by grace, but, I, I, but by faith, you know. But I think um, it doesn't mean practically we don't do work anymore. What this means is that we can do work without the worldly motivations that often drive other people to do their work. We are freed up to do work without the worldly motivations that might drive other people to do work. So, for example... We don't have to work for an earthly inheritance. Why? Because we already have a heavenly inheritance. We don't need to work to get more stuff. Why? Because we already have God himself. We don't need to work in order to be liked, in order to move up the ladder, because we already have the approval of God, 
and he's already granted us a place by his side. And so all that matters, we already have. We already have the most important things in life. And so we don't have to work under these other worldly motivations because we have something that's far better. We can be freed from our worldly motivations. And so what is ultimately our motivation for doing work? I'm just going to read Ephesians 2.10. We'll talk about this and we'll close on this verse. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You know, I love this imagery. We are God's handiwork. Some translations say we are God's workmanship. Um, the Greek is essentially, you know, we are God's poem or, you know, that's one way to think about it. Like God created us and crafted us and beautified us. And, uh, and for what purpose? Why did God do that? So that we would do good works. So you can think about it this way. When we do works, we are acting out in our identity as God's work, as God's image bearers. Just as God worked and produced us, so we work and produce things as extensions of God's work here on earth. We work because God works through our work. That's probably the way to summarize it. It is through our work that God works on earth. He created us and crafted us to be his image bearers, to do his work, and when we are doing his work, us as workmanship, us as handiwork, we are just overflowing because of what God is doing in us. So what is the motivation for work? We work because God works through our work. We are often the means by which God does his work on earth. So hold on to that. Whenever you are feeling frustrated in life because of work, just remember that you are not working in vain. Your work is not meaningless. You are working and God is working through you. And one day you will bear fruit for eternity. Let's pray together. The worship team will come up and then we'll continue our service. Father, we thank you so much for uh, this passages, these passages that we read in Ecclesiastes um, about the futility and the meaninglessness of work and, um, and all these reasons people have for work and why none of them satisfy. But we thank you so much that Ecclesiastes isn't the only book in the Bible, but that there's so much more to the gospel. And we thank you that Jesus came and he gave us rest, rest from all of our labors um, so that we don't have to strive and be so frustrated with work anymore. And ultimately we can rest in the message of the gospel that we've been saved not by any of the works we've done, but by grace alone. And we think that that frees us from this mentality of workaholism that the world often throws at us in which we look for all of these different reasons to keep us going, but we can just remember that's not us anymore. We've been rescued from that lifestyle that we can just trust in this gospel that says we are image bearers, we are adopted, we are freed, we are redeemed, and we are your workmanship, your handiwork, your hands and feet. So I pray throughout this week when we are doing all the different menial tasks, frustrating tasks that we've been assigned to do, that we keep that in mind, that we never forget we are working for you. And you are impacting our world. You are reaching the world through our little efforts. 
We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.